three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week, Battlefield Laboratories, war zones that are being used to test new weapon systems and novel technologies that have the potential to spread beyond the confines of those war zones and reshape warfare as we know it. Of course, I want to begin with some historical context. At first, I want to go over the Spanish Civil War and how that gave a, offered a preview of World War II then we'll move on to uh, what's going on today in battlefields like Ukraine and Syria and Libya and, to a lesser extent before that, Iraq and Afghanistan on how those uh, novel technologies and new weapon systems were developed and tested. And then finally, we'll uh, wrap up with you know what we can do about it. Uh, what can we do to curb the spread or to manage the use of new and novel uh, weapon systems as they become developed on the battlefield? So first, uh, just some historical context. Of course, the, uh, the Spanish Civil War is a, a good modern example of how new weapon systems and novel technologies were first tested to see if they could be actually effective under combat conditions. One of the um, good sources to read on this is Ian Westwell's book, Condor Legion, the Wehrmacht's Training Ground. And he opened up by saying, quote, you know, this unit, referring to the Condor Legion, this unit served as a test bed for the tactics and equipment of the Blitzkrieg Doctrine, which will be put into action when the Second World War broke out uh, in earnest. End quote. So what he's talking about there is the Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force, the Air Force of the Third Reich. What he's talking about is their use of much larger and more capable uh, military aircraft uh, in, in the Spanish Civil War, where they first uh, tested those. Uh, in, in bombing cities on a scale that we would consider to be more modern uh, in its scope. You know, you, you look back to World War I, and of course there were, there were aircraft that could drop munitions, but mostly it was just uh, someone sitting in the back of the plane or the pilot who had a, a handheld munition that they would let go. And those, of course, could, if you're unlucky enough to be in the path, they could, you could be killed or injured, but not enough to destroy a, a building or any other large structure or, or to systematically... Uh, wreak havoc on an urban area. What changed during the 1930s, and particularly uh, in Germany, was the construction and development of much larger and uh, much more capable aircraft. So the engines got bigger and more powerful. The range was increased, meaning they could fly farther to the to, to reach more distant targets and still come back to base. And most critically, they could carry a much bigger payload of ordnance. So where before you had you know, a five or ten pound bomb that you could drop by hand. Now you had, you know, munitions that weighed hundreds of pounds and sometimes even over a thousand pounds uh, that you could drop, which is a, a much larger uh, concentration of explosives that is capable of destroying buildings and, and streets and, and causing a lot more damage in an urban setting. And so that's precisely what happened. And you can read about that in From Guernica to Aleppo, The Price of Civilian Bombing in the Spanish Civil War. And they started out with a description, quote, One of the first and most devastating instances of experimental aerial rage was the bombing of Guernica on April 26, 1937. The attack carried out by the Condor Legion of the Luftwaffe under Colonel Wolfram von Richthofen 
was deliberate and carefully orchestrated. Over the course of three and a half hours, approximately 31 to 41 tons of bombs were dropped over Guernica, destroying practically all the physical structures. Only five buildings in the town were left standing, and the casualties for the civilians was in the hundreds. End quote. And of course, after that, a second aerial uh, attack was launched on Guernica, but this time the uh, Luftwaffe dropped incendiaries, which is uh, ex- which are devices that, that ignite on contact and set fire to their surroundings. And so not only did they turn it into rubble, they then set the rubble on fire, which killed a lot more civilians who were trapped in the uh, in bombed out buildings and couldn't get out uh, and, and suffered a very unpleasant death. Uh, so that sort of gave the world a preview of what was to come in the Second World War, where you saw, uh, not just in Europe, but also in Japan, and of course over, over Britain itself, at least initially, the, uh, the, the large-scale systematic <clears throat> excuse me, bombings of cities uh, with a level of destruction that previous wars had not uh, seen. Of course, the destruction of cities uh, during warfare is a very old story in human history. Uh, you, just as an example, you could cite Jerusalem, which has been destroyed at least twice, attacked 52 times, under siege at least 23 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times, depending on which historical source or records you want to cite. But obviously, it's been attacked, destroyed, captured, recaptured a lot. So the destruction of cities is not a new thing in warfare. But before the age of air power, the destruction of cities typically happened whenever one happened to be directly in the path or was targeted by ground forces. So an army would come up to the gates and either break in and and destroy and kill all the inhabitants, or they would simply lay siege to the city and prevent any supplies from entering. And and that goes all the way back to the the siege tactics of surrounding a city and cutting it off. It goes all the way back to to the the Peloponnesian War with with Athens and Sparta, where the, uh, the forces would surround the city, in, in that case Athens, who had a, a port that they defended, so they were able for a long time to get supplies in from the sea, but when that was finally cut off, then the city itself was no longer able to get supplies, and starvation and disease uh, were rampant. So you could always destroy cities that way. But what the Spanish Civil War showed the world was that air power uh, in the use of uh, fighter and bomber aircraft could now be used on an unprecedented scale at that time to, to wreak havoc over civilian population centers and to, uh, to attack targets that in other wars would have essentially been left intact. And so the world paid some attention. I mean, there were some reports from the Spanish Civil War, but they didn't generate um, a lot of attention in the international community. And for the most part, when World War II started, the, um, the impact of that from the air left folks surprised uh, that there could be so much destruction, even though they, they had missed the um, the earlier importance of uh, the Spanish Civil War in predicting or rather previewing what was about to happen uh, in World War II. So what's that have to do with today? Well, just like in the Second World War when new technologies in the form of bomber aircraft that could carry tons of weapons were developed and used and, and they changed warfare, today we have novel technologies that are also appearing um, on battlefields in places like Ukraine and, and Syria and Libya that certainly have the potential to spread beyond those conflict zones and reshape warfare as, as it's currently understood, um, at least for the foreseeable future. And two of the most particularly um, interesting types of that new technology is comes in the form of drones, 
mostly aerial drones, but not only. There are some un unmanned ground vehicles being used in Ukraine, and we'll get to that. But for the most part, aerial unmanned aerial vehicles uh, are changing warfare, and they're being used on a scale in Ukraine that we've never seen uh, in what would otherwise be called a, a conventional you know, conflict between two, two armies fighting over control of territory. And that's, that's playing out in Ukraine. The second is the novel and innovative use of cyber attack and internet-based, web-based technology. And we'll get to that too. Uh, there have been some new instances and new uses of that technology on the battlefield. It's already happened. It's not, none of this is notional. All of these things that we're going to talk about have already taken place in Ukraine. And they could certainly be duplicated uh, in other places. So the drone technology is nothing uh, surprising. Uh, back in 2009, an, an individual named Peter Singer wrote a book called Wired for War, The Robotics Revolution in 21st Century Conflict. I had a chance to meet him once. Um, I think it was in either the Hampton Roads area or up near Washington, D.C. at a presentation he gave. I can't remember uh, which one. But it was, pretty, it was a pretty interesting uh, commentary because at that time, what he had pointed out was the same topic that we're covering today, and that these new technologies, especially drones, were at, at that time, you know, in 2009, they were first really starting to become more widespread in their in their use and much more capable uh, in terms of what they could deliver for armies that were using them on the battlefield. You know, when we started Iraq, uh, the Iraq invasion in 2003, drones weren't really a part of our, uh, our operations. And as that conflict continued, thanks to the development of uh, platforms like the Predator and other drones that were manufactured by civilian defense companies, they started to find, we started to find new ways to, to use those technologies and to apply them on the battlefield. In the case of drones, what's really interesting is they're, they're not autonomous. Sometimes they're referred to as autonomous platforms, but technically they're remotely piloted which means that there is still a human being at the controls. They're still being flown by a human being. The weapons are still being released by a human operator. So somewhere there's a human being pushing a button to, to release that weapon. It's not being done by software or an artificial intelligence or anything like that. It's just that the operator isn't physically with the drone. Uh, in many cases, they're, they're miles away. In some cases, on the other side of the world, as we saw, as we'll see later on, or as we saw later on in Afghanistan, you could operate drones from the United States. So the the drone pilot and weapons operator would be here in the United States out at Creech Air Force Base, which is uh, not far from Las Vegas in Nevada, but they would be connected to the drone via the uh, the internet, a secure internet connection, and so they were flying the, uh, the drone thousands of miles away. So this provides uh, protection to the operator because even if you shoot down the drone, the operator isn't harmed because they're thousands of miles away. And it also gives you the ability to, drones can fly over because they're they're smaller and, and use less fuel. They have a longer, some of them have a longer a loiter time. They can stay over a target uh, for a longer period of time. And they're hard to see. You can't really see them on radar. Their radar cross-section is tiny. Most radar screens won't show them at all. It'll just look like ground clutter, which is when it's too close to the ground to distinguish between you know mountains and trees or if it's if it's up in the sky they just they can't see it at all because it's just too small and they're also quite difficult to see with the naked eye uh, you can't see them at all at night and even in the daytime they're very difficult to spot again because they're physically uh, small the structures are not very big but they can still carry weapons capable of destroying a tank 
or a car or an armored vehicle or to take out small structures like small houses. Um, they certainly can do that. And so we started to use those um, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, of course, around the, the border areas of, of Pakistan, the, the federally, federally, excuse me, the federally administered uh, tribal areas and the northwest frontier province uh, where a lot of uh, terrorist groups like to hide out. They would come over to Afghanistan, carry out attacks and run back across the Pakistani border to hide. And U.S. forces would, would be able to use drones to still track them down and target them uh, even on the other side of the border. The advantage of the drones is that the, the, the smaller warhead means there's much less uh, collateral damage. Uh, you, you really have to be exactly in the target zone for it to kill or injure you because of the smaller warhead. Even if one landed, you know, 100 feet away, which would you know, be scary, but you would most likely escape uh, even any injury because the, the kill radius and the injury radius for the warhead doesn't extend that far. Um, so they're more precise weapons, and they were, they were widely applied. They're being used in Ukraine in even more novel ways. So over the, the course of many years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, drone technology evolved. They've been used in Syria. They've been used in other conflicts, most notably Libya. Turkey has developed a number of, of novel drones that are flying around and being used in Libya. They've been used in the Georgia-Ossetia uh, conflict between Russia and Georgia. And so by the time we get to, to Ukraine in 2022, there's been well over a decade of drones being uh, developed, refined, and applied on the battlefield. And, and what we're seeing in Ukraine is a, is a use of drones on a scale that's much, much larger than anything we've seen uh, in any other conflict. There are more drones being launched and engaging targets uh, in the past two months during uh, the, the Ukrainian, the Russian invasion of Ukraine than we would see in, in many weeks uh, of operations initially in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so that's what that does is it gives a, a military like Ukraine's, which is, you know, outmatched uh, in terms of manpower and resources. You know, Russia's much bigger. They have a much bigger military force and they have a lot more pieces of equipment. You know, they got more tanks, more vehicles, more planes. But what the drones do is it provides a smaller adversary with a way to engage a, a bigger enemy um, without being targeted themselves. So the Ukrainians are taking a very decentralized approach to fighting the Russian invasion. Their plan is not to, to, to ride out in numbers and try to take on a large Russian mechanized force with another Ukrainian mechanized force. Rather, their approach is to stay out of sight and launch drones remotely to engage tanks and, and vehicles which have, it's just been, been pretty effective in slowing down and in some cases halting uh, the Russian invasion while allowing their Ukrainian operators to remain uh, safe. So the advantage of that is you can attack over and over and over again without being seen or heard. Uh, so you can destroy enemy equipment and, and personnel without being destroyed yourself. Uh, so that's obviously quite helpful uh, for Ukrainian forces. And they've, been, they've used them... Uh, in a, in a very effective way. Some of the newer drones are specifically designed to take out difficult to kill uh, targets like tanks, which obviously have very thick armor, uh, but these are specially engineered with a shaped charge and a, and a type of explosive that allows the impact to be such that it punches a hole in that armor and either detonates the um, explosives from the uh, rounds that the tank's carrying inside or it kills the occupants with a superheated gas explosion that comes in through the um, 
through the hole that's punched in the armor. So they're very effective against um, tanks and, and armored vehicles uh, in Ukraine. And that's significant because the Russian invasion was itself uh, a mechanized invasion. And so drones, those are, they're also relatively inexpensive. Uh, compared to a frontline combat aircraft, the price of a drone is a fraction. It's a fraction of what you would have to pay to even purchase uh, a large-scale fighter bomber. Not to mention, you have to provide training and fuel for the, and then train the pilots, which can take years. Whereas a drone operator can be trained in a few weeks. Uh, so it's cheap, they're easy, but they're still very effective, and that's allowed them to be employed uh, on the battlefields in Ukraine with an unprecedented effectiveness from a combat standpoint. And certainly, because they're cheap and easy to use, uh, and easy to learn how to use, uh, there's there's really nothing to stop an, an adversary from using drones almost anywhere in the world. Uh, you could use drones to attack cities almost anywhere or attack targets almost anywhere, and it would be very difficult to, to stop that attack. So I, I would expect to see more drones on the battlefields, especially the aerial uh, variety in the future. There haven't been as many ground vehicles, uh, at least so far, that we know of. If, if there, there's been reports of a few Russian-made uh, unmanned ground vehicles that have been involved in combat, but the information on that is still sketchy, so I don't have a lot to, uh, to say on that because I don't have enough information. The other key different uh, technology that's being used in a, in a novel way in Ukraine is uh, in this, the realm of cyberspace and in, in cyber engagements. One of the most interesting ways that the technology is being used in Ukraine uh, is, is facial recognition. So there's a company out there called Clearview AI, which has developed a, a software algorithm that can scan the internet for images and match them to a face, to a picture of a face or an image of a face that's being taken by the camera and provide pretty close uh, to instantaneous uh, identification for who that person is. And so the Ukrainians have sort of found a very novel way to use that technology, not only to identify folks who were killed uh, in combat, but also to send messages to relatives of those who were killed in combat. So what the Ukrainians are doing with this facial recognition uh, technology is actually taking pictures or getting images of, of Russian soldiers who were killed in, and killed in action, and they're contacting their relatives in Russia to inform them that their, that their you know, son or, or uh, husband or, or whatever the relationship is, that their, that their relative or friend has been killed, and here's the images of it. So you can just imagine, try and imagine that the psychological impact that would have. Imagine here in the U.S. if you had a friend or a relative who was serving uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Taliban sent you a message saying, we have killed your, your son or daughter, and here's the picture. I mean, you can just imagine what that would, would feel like. And so that, that's been uh, leveraged in a very effective way to, to sway uh, Russian public opinion by having a psychological impact on the relatives and friends of those who have been killed in action, which and initially this, the, the Russian government had put out a, a narrative saying that um, they're, they're weren't, they weren't suffering uh, significant losses, but because of Ukraine's use of the facial recognition and their contacting of Russian relatives, the Russian government had to change its stance, and they had to admit that they were suffering significant losses in Ukraine because people already knew about it. And so they, they could tell pretty, pretty clearly that they were being lied to by the Russian government. So the Russian government actually changed, which is pretty unusual, it changed its public narrative. The Kremlin admitted that they were suffering heavy losses 
and uh, in Ukraine much heavier than they had first acknowledged. And that was due in, in a large part to the Ukrainians' novel use of the facial recognition technology, which is something that in, in earlier decades would have just been unthinkable. You know, for the most part, when you deploy, when you go to a war zone and you, and you fight in combat or you support combat operations or both, and then you come home, the folks who were in that war zone will never know your name. They, they won't, they'll just know you were a member of the American military. They, they don't know you personally. But what this technology offers is, is a change to that. So now your enemies do know your name, not just your unit or your country. They know you personally, who you are, who your family members are. They can find all that on social media. And so we've already seen in, in Ukraine uh, that technology used to inform um, family members of the deaths of servicemen in, in the country. And I would, you know, in the future, there's nothing to stop someone, an enemy, from getting that information and perhaps even sending assassins to your home uh, in, in other countries. So when you leave the battlefield, you think it's all over, you go home, you're safe and sound. Well, your enemy may not agree. And as the old saying goes, you know, your enemy gets a vote. And so there's nothing to stop them from, from sending assassins uh, to attack you in your home, in your hometown, because they know who you are. They've identified you when you were on the battlefield. And that is something that the military and future militaries are, are going to have to wrestle with as it, it poses a new risk uh, to, their own, to their own military forces when they, not just on the battlefield, but when they leave the battlefield as well. Also in the realm of cyberspace, Ukraine has proved very effective at putting together a decentralized but still functional group of hackers to take on and to conduct cyber attacks systematically uh, on not only the Russian government but also uh, on in Russian society writ large. There's an article uh, written by Matt Burgess in Wired magazine and, and he wrote, quote, the orders are issued like clockwork. Every day, often at 5 a.m. local time, the telegram channel housing Ukraine's unprecedented IT army of hackers buzzes with a new list of targets. The volunteer group has been knocking Russian websites offline using wave after wave of distributed denial of service attacks, which flood websites with traffic requests and make them inaccessible since the war started. Russian online payment services, government departments, aviation companies, and even food delivery firms have all been targeted by the IT army as it aims to disrupt everyday life in Russia. Russians have also noticed regular hitches in the work of TV streaming services. And this is an example, uh, and, and by the way, that's, that's the end of the quote there from the Wired article. But there, there's this another example of uh, Ukrainian hackers getting into gaining temporary control of Russian state television and changing the content of their broadcast. So instead of showing what the, the program, the, te the TV channel was going to show, the Ukrainian hackers showed their own version, which was a, more, a, more, a much more critical take on what was happening on the battlefield in Ukraine. And that's straight out of, if you ever read uh, Stephen King's The Running Man or, or watched the, the movie, uh, they both had this in there, that's when a, a group of hackers uh, broke into the state-controlled uh, TV channel to broadcast the truth to the, the people who were watching. And so, in an, I guess, an example of life imitating art, um, that has already happened in this new Ukraine war thanks to the, uh, the use of, of hackers in Ukraine. And I want to emphasize that the folks that are doing this are not Technically, they're not affiliated. They don't work for the Ukrainian government. These are Ukrainian citizens who are coming together, leveraging their combined expertise in computer science to direct operations against Russia. So they aren't, you could, you could take out um, 
the, the, the Ukraine government in Kiev, but the hackers would still keep going because they don't work for the government directly uh, or even indirectly as far as we know. They're just Ukrainian citizens who've banded together uh, to launch cyber attacks against Russia. So why is a Ukrainian <clears throat> army of volunteer hackers uh, significant uh, in, in the sense of uh, how warfare is conducted or, or how it's being employed uh, against Russia and how it might be uh, employed against future forces. If you've ever read uh, a book by Robert Heinlein called Starship Troopers, and they made a movie about this, although I, the book is much better uh, than any of the movies they made about it. The first movie wasn't too bad, but the book itself is excellent. I would highly recommend reading it um, because it deals not only with new technology and war, but also with, with the philosophy behind why wars are fought in the first place and how technology can play a role in that. So here's, I want to, I'll get to the, the main point in just a second, but here, here's a brief, um, a little bit of a, a quote from Starship Troopers when one of the characters is talking to an instructor when they're going through military training. And this is, this is what the, how that conversation went. I'm just quoting here, quote, there can be circumstances when it's just as foolish to hit an enemy with an H-bomb as it would be to spank a baby with an axe. War is not violence and killing pure and simple. War is controlled violence for a purpose. The purpose of war is to support your government's decisions by force. The purpose is never to kill the enemy just to be killing him, but to make him do what you want him to. Not killing, but controlled and purposeful violence. But it's not your business or mine to decide the purpose of the control. It's never a soldier's business to decide when or where or how or why he fights. That belongs to the statesmen and the generals. The statesmen decide why and how much. The generals take it from there and tell us where and when and how. We supply the violence. Other people, older and wiser heads, as they say, supply the controls, which is as it should be. That's the best answer I can give you. If it doesn't satisfy you, I'll get you up to I'll get you a chit to go talk to the regimental commander. Because if he can't convince you, then go home and be a civilian. Because in that case you will certainly never make a soldier. End quote. And so what he's talking about there is is something that, that folks who have been in combat before will recognize. And we're often considered to be when you're in combat or when you're going to on a deployment, you're what we call the pointy end of the spear. The pointy end of the spear is the one that goes out to do the damage. But you're not holding that spear itself. Somebody else behind you is directing where the spear goes. That's not you. You're the pointy end. The tip goes where it's directed, but somebody behind you at a higher level of control is determining where that point gets stuck. And that's what Heinlein was saying when he talked about soldiers fight the war, but statesmen and generals tell the soldiers where and why and for how long. And so what does that have to do with Ukraine's volunteer IT army? Well, so this is, this is not something specifically that the president of Ukraine asked for. And so what we have, and this is not the first iteration, it's just the most recent. This is a, an iteration of folks who can band together for a common purpose to fight an enemy, a common enemy, without necessarily being directed by a statesman to do so. Of course, the United States wrestled with this very phenomenon for many years in the war on terrorism, because most of our, our military apparatus is geared towards fighting an enemy that has a leader that can be captured or killed or persuaded to, to stop through diplomacy. Well, what happens when you fight an enemy that doesn't have a, a leader, a single leader, or that doesn't have a single statesman, or that isn't interested in, in diplomacy for surrender? Um, then, you know, warfare becomes something different 
from the the more conventional notion that we've that Heinlein expressed. And by the way, I, I think that is true. That the, the version that the, the Highland character was talking about there is what we would call conventional warfare, where a uniformed army is fighting on behalf of a government, and this is the type of warfare that we saw in World War One, and World War Two, uh, and to a lesser extent uh, in, in subsequent conflicts like uh, Korea and Vietnam. But as time has went on, what we found is those uniformed armies are now fighting against enemies and adversaries who don't necessarily have a statesman to answer to and who don't necessarily respond to the same type of diplomacy. And so that that tells you that the nature of warfare has, has changed. And so it's not difficult to imagine a volunteer IT army becoming a volunteer drone army where you have groups now banding together to launch autonomous vehicles to carry out uh, combat or to uh, inflict damage on whoever, whatever opponent they designate, uh, and they don't have a single leader or a single statesman that can be captured, killed, or, or can be convinced through diplomacy to turn it off. And so that's that's how an example of how technology can change the dynamic of warfare, and especially the the conventional dynamic of warfare that we we grew accustomed to uh, with the world wars, because those are the world wars in America, at least. Those are the world wars that are always held up as the example of a, quote, good war. Not to suggest that they were any way, in any way, shape, or form good in a sense of, yay, we like having those around. That's not what I mean. What people mean by that is it was good in the sense that, the, the, in their view, the, and I agree, the right side triumphed. Good triumphed over evil. It was done by uniformed personnel answering to a state. And so it, all, it has a structure that's very easy to grasp and very intuitive to understand so that we, we know what it is and how it works. But today, thanks to the modern technology and web-based applications and the ability of non-state groups to group together and continue a fight or carry out a fight, it's a very different type of warfare. And that's the kind that we're, we're facing today. And the significance of that in Ukraine is that there's sort of a, a combination. Now, there's a hybrid going on there. So you have conventional Ukrainian forces that wear uniforms and, and drive tanks or fly jets fighting against Russian forces at the same time. But you also have more decentralized, smaller groups of Ukrainian civilians running around that aren't wearing uniforms, but know how to launch shoulder-fired missiles, who know how to do cyber attacks, who know how to operate drones, and they're proving to be quite effective against the conventional uh, military forces of the Russian army. And so that's something that I'm sure as time goes on scholars will be taking a, a closer look at and that is how modern technology is allowing or enabling more network centric warfare groups that aren't that don't wear a uniform, that don't have a common headquarters, they may even not even live in the same place but they can still come together and they can fight as a single unit but they're geographically dispersed. And so what this means is um, Ukraine has sort of uh, given a one-two punch to Russia. On the battlefield, they've used novel technology uh, in the form of drones and, of course, also uh, the shoulder-fired missiles like the Enlaw from Britain and the Javelin from the United States to help give otherwise light infantry or, or individual uh, clusters of, of armed civilians a way to destroy mechanized and a mechanized invasion force such as tanks, helicopters, and, and our armored uh, vehicles, which otherwise would be very difficult uh, to stop with small arms. So that new technology has given them the one of the punch, and then the two part of the punch is when in cyber war they've been able to cause disruptions inside Russia itself and to 
reach the Russian public to let them know that the narrative that their the Russian state television is is giving them of events is a false one. Uh, that doesn't mean that the Ukrainian version of events that, that they're broadcasting is 100% true. I'm not saying that. Um, but it, it still has a psychological effect uh, on folks who are viewing that television when they see their, their own TV station interrupted and a different broadcast take place, which challenges uh, the ordinary narrative that they were hearing. And so these are things I think we can expect to see continue uh, in the future as you know the ability to conduct cyber attacks um, is only limited to a person's knowledge and skill and the amount of uh, dedication they have. Of course, Ukraine had help. Uh, also, the uh, the hacking group Anonymous has declared cyber war on Russia and to date has released what they claim is over five terabytes of government state uh, information, and not just government information, but also uh, from uh, banks and other private institutions uh, in Russia. So whether or not it was Ukrainian hackers that broke into the Russian state television or whether it was anonymous, I can't say for sure. I'm not sure if either one of them has really claimed it or disputed uh, a claim of uh, responsibility for who did that. But it doesn't matter because the fact that it happened is what's so extraordinary um, that that took place. So the Ukraine conflict is, like many wars, um, you, we're seeing the use of novel technologies and and new inv and inventions used in new in, uh, ways that we weren't uh, expecting and didn't anticipate. And so the question then becomes, you know, well, is what can, what can we do, what should we do um, about these, these new technologies and the way they're being used on the battlefield? And I think it's important for us to recognize uh, that we're getting a preview of what uh, future conflicts may look like, just like the folks uh, in 1937 or the 19, late 1930s were given a preview of what some of World War II might look like from the Spanish Civil War, we're getting a preview of what future conflicts were probably going to look like from the battlefield in Ukraine. And right now, when it comes to the use of drones or the use of cyber attacks, which are the two major elements of technology I wanted to focus on, there are others that I'll get to in, in future shows, but I wanted to focus on those two today because they've been so widely used and they've been so effective uh, in Ukraine. It's really, when it comes to cyber attacks or, or drone usage on the battlefield, it's really the Wild West. And what I mean by that is there's almost no rules or international treaties or norms governing how these things can be used. So it's really just up to the creativity and the, uh, the desire of the user as to what they want to do with these technologies. We don't have any way or means with which to govern their usage. And I think that's a step that we need to take. I think that we need to, the United States needs to lead an effort to establish an international treaty governing the use of unmanned aerial vehicles and governing a governing the use of, of cyber attacks against uh, countries that are engaged in hostilities. And if you think, well, that's impossible. I mean, you, you know, the people are going to use the weapons they however they want to. That's, there's something to be said for that. I think that's probably, you know, you could make a strong argument there. But I would also point out that we, we managed to put together treaties that governed the use of nuclear weapons during you know Cold War Part One, and those were effective. I cite as an example the, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, SALT One and SALT Two, which were focused on eliminating certain categories of, of nuclear weapons. From memory, I think I think those were focused on intermediate range uh, nuclear weapons, uh, which intermediate range posed a unique sort of danger because they could they could reach further, but they were still mobile. So they, they had a they packed almost a destructive punch of, of the larger weapons, but you couldn't find them, uh, so that they presented a unique threat. Anyway, 
the Soviet Union and the United States, through diplomatic uh, engagement, through diplomacy, signed those the SALT I and SALT II treaties and, and enforced them. So reciprocity you know, does work. Reciprocity means we signed this treaty, so we'll get rid of our intermediate-range weapons if you get rid of yours, and we have um, mechanisms to enforce that. You know, We allow observers from the other country to come in to, to where we are and see that we're doing that. And when they go back home and verify, yep, we did it, so now we're going to do the same thing, and our observers will, will verify that. And what it boils down to is the treaty helped curb the use of uh, and deployment of intermediate-range uh, nuclear weapons. So treaties can work. They can have an impact on how weapons, new weapon systems at that time, you know, the nuclear nuclear weapons were new, were the newest um, and, and most dangerous weapons out there. So treaties can work, and I would strongly advocate that the United States get on a get on the stick and start working uh, in the diplomatic arena towards the establishment of a treaty, an international treaty, whose signatories will be bound by the terms of that and how they use drone technology and how they launch cyber attacks. And the reason for that is if we don't do that, if we don't try to get a handle on how these new weapon systems are going to be used, someone eventually, probably sooner rather than later, is going to figure out a way to use either drones or cyber attacks in a way that no one expected, which causes a lot more damage than we anticipated and triggers a larger war between nations. So we, we, they won't admit responsibility for what they've done. Countries will blame each other. It'll start a war, all because there was no there was no way to monitor or regulate or control how drones or cyber attacks were used by those who have the means to do so. So those are steps that we can take to try to govern. Try emphasize the word try. There's no way to completely control it. I, I fully acknowledge that, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to manage. Uh, how how these new technologies are used and um, how they're employed on the battlefield because it can prevent uh, wider damage in, in future conflicts or even the uh, initiation of future conflicts themselves. And so battlefields as laboratories is probably going to continue, uh, especially in, in war zones like Ukraine. And, and I didn't talk much about Syria and Libya, but there are similar efforts there by the combatants to use uh, drones and cyber all the cyber attacks uh, on their adversaries, and uh, we have to get try to get a handle on some rules and, and regulations and laws that govern the use of these new technologies before they get completely out of control uh, and trigger uh, a, a wider conflict or or a new war. So that's it for this week. I really thank everyone for their time and for listening. Um, this has been our show on uh, battlefield laboratories. We talked about, uh, you know, in good, in true military fashion, we always had this uh, format we would use as a three-step uh, approach where we're gonna we're gonna tell you what we talked about, we're gonna talk about it, and then we're gonna tell you what we talked about. So I I guess that rubbed off. I don't know. I, I can't let go of it um, sometimes. And so we, we talked about um, battlefields as a laboratory, how drones and cyber attacks are being used in novel ways, um, what the impact of that has been how they might spread beyond the confines of that, and then finally, you know, what we should do about it and why we should pursue international treaties to govern the use of drones and cyber attacks. So that's been our show for today. Again, thanks for listening. Hope everybody has a great day and take care.